0: Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent here at Renegade Realty Group with Keller Williams. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, first of all, it's this podcast, and also it's a local monthly meetup where we get together and talk about real estate and business. This group's about networking and doing deals, folks. This ain't your grandma's Rhea. No guru bullshit from the front, no smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're ever interested in attending one of our local meetings, go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com, forward slash investors or facebook.com, forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Also, if you can't ever attend the meetings, we do record and put them on this podcast. You can also watch them live on Facebook or Instagram. You could check that out there as well. Legal disclaimer, in no way, shape, or form should anything that I say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investor Show of the Week, where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. This week's quote is from Josiah Quincy. When you have a number of disagreeable duties to perform, always do the most disagreeable first. When you have a number of disagreeable duties to perform, always do the most disagreeable first. All right, folks, this is it. Part four, the renegade Droit or the millionaire real estate investor. We're starting on page 10. We are working our way through, and this one's going to be. This one's going to be fun. I don't think I could finish it in part four, but we're going to knock out another you know, 70 to 100 pages, and we'll definitely finish it in part five. So you've been following along, folks. Go ahead and pick up your Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller, and go ahead and open up to page 211, and we're starting with question four, so page two hundred. And 11. All right. If you're just tuning in for the first time, go back and listen to all the other ones. It's in a playlist. All right. Page 211. Here we go. Question four, which properties are the real opportunities? Your lead generation activities are working and you have investment opportunity leads. Now what? The number one cause of disillusionment and lost momentum is chasing too many leads that look like opportunities, but aren't. Although there is no foolproof way to avoid wasting some time with these suspects, there is a way to avoid wasting a lot of time. It's called qualifying your leads. All this means is that you always must ask a few qualifying questions of the seller or the refer to make sure the property falls within your criteria for what you're willing to consider. In other words, they qualify as prospects. The way to convert suspects to prospects is to write down the broad criteria that are most important to you and then make sure the property meets them. Properties that do true prospects are worth inspecting in greater detail. You still will end up talking to a lot of sellers and seeing a fair amount of property in this qualification process. Some aspect of your criteria may demand that you get personally involved to get the details you need to make a sound investment decision. There also will be times when individuals in the support circle of your work network can step in on your behalf and help you qualify properties. Your real estate agent or your contractor may be happy to take a look at a property for you and give you his or her opinion. These people are in your support circle because they are good at what they do and because you trust their professional judgment. If the suspect turns out to be a true prospect, one way you can reward those people is by involving them professionally in the deal. The presiding wisdom is when you're asking the question, which properties are the real opportunities is to bear in mind your strict criteria and never violate them. Great criteria act like a safety valve and protect both your time and your money. The truth is that building great lead generation criteria requires focus over time. If you're looking at single family homes in a certain part of town, you can get a rough idea what they sell for and rent for by looking at the current area listings However, the more suspects you investigate, the better your sense will be of which ones represent true prospects. You'll start to understand which aspects of your criteria count the most toward market values and rental rates. You need to understand why a certain property sells for the market average while others sell for $15,000 more or why a certain property rents for the average rent while one down the street rents for $150 more. Each time you look, you get a snapshot of how your criteria perform in specific circumstances. Different factors affect value differently in your targeted areas, but your focus over time will give you insight into this process. Millionaire real estate investors are always refining their criteria. They want the tremendous advantages that come from truly understanding their market. And then not in the book. One thing I tell new agents and new wholesalers and new investors is the best way to learn how to set a good appointment is to go on a ton of appointments. Now I actually do put together a checklist and go to the wholesale series. You can listen to the whole thing. If you're just doing, um, looking for wholesale deals, right. And or flip deals. Uh, you can, you can certainly, you can certainly go and look at that. But if you're new, what I encourage a lot of people on, since you have more time than you have money or deals, just go on a lot of appointments and then pay attention to why that appointment wasn't a good appointment. And odds are you'll go back and you remember something you read in a book or you'll see my part of the wholesale series. You go, Oh, that's right. The book said, or Jeremy said, or so-and-so said not to, and you'll get the idea and then you'll start to set a better appointment. I set really good appointments now, but it took me a long time. Like as a wholesaler, really it really took me like about a year to set a really good appointment. I know some people can do it faster. Um, But I also like going on more appointments than the average person too. So take that in. All right, back to the book. Live the five laws of lead generation. They say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and that is certainly true in the game of real estate investing. Millionaire real estate investors approach lead generation with a posture and perspective that allows them to recognize legitimate opportunities and disregard properties that might be trouble. It's a posture and perspective of watchful investor, and it's built on the five laws of lead generation. We're on page 213 in figure 49, all right? Law number one, never compromise. You're only looking for properties that meet your criteria and motivated sellers who will meet your terms. This law is about standards and the patience and persistence it takes to fulfill them. Finding real estate investing opportunities that meet the tough, unyielding standards of a successful investor takes time, patience, and persistence, especially in the beginning. It can take weeks, months, or even longer to find a deal that is right for you. After looking at property after property, many new investors start compromising in their criteria or their terms. For an investor, the answer to the question, is this a great deal, is black and white a yes or no answer. It's a great deal or it's not. For investors, there is no might be. That is the exclusive territory of speculators. Speculators. Properties either meet your strict criteria or they do not. Sellers are either motivated to accept your strict terms or they are not. The strong desire to do a deal, to get in the game, can lead to trouble. Never compromise. Law number two, be a shopper, not a buyer. It's better to miss a good one than to buy a bad one. Investors live for the hunt, the thrill, the chase. They are as attached to the process of searching for investment properties as they are to the act of buying them. They are shoppers, not buyers. In our interviews with millionaire real estate investors, the way they talked about their investments made this very clear. They were as proud of the effort they made in finding a deal and making it happen as they were of the profit they made. These investors understand that being a shopper instead of a buyer yields two significant advantages. First, they get to enjoy the part of investing they do the most, the ongoing quest for great opportunities. Investing is cyclic, 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 one of the two. There are times of plenty and times of scarcity, but because they are shoppers, abundance never leads to recklessness and scarcity never leads to impatience. That leads to the second great advantage of this posture. It protects them. These investors never feel the urge to compromise their standards. They treat every potential deal with a healthy dose of skepticism. They see properties first as suspects, and only after a thorough examination will they consider them prospects. It's the qualification process. The property must meet their criteria and the seller must meet their terms. Nothing else will do. They believe it is a great day when they say no as it is when they say yes. While a buyer never leaves the store empty-handed, a shopper will do so handily. Shoppers understand that it is far better to lose a good one than buy a bad one. Most people think buying is investing, but they're wrong. Buying doesn't make you an investor any more than buying groceries makes you a chef. Making decisions on the basis of sound investment criteria and terms makes you an investor. Buying isn't the decisive factor. It's just a result of a decision. If you're looking at a property, talking to sellers, and saying no, you're investing. Great investors celebrate the decision-making process first and the outcome second. They know that their success is based not on doing deals, but rather on doing great deals. They love to shop and decide not, look and buy. In the end, the great deals go to the great decision-makers. They go to the shoppers. Not in the book. Nailed that one. Sometimes I'd go two, three weeks and not get an offer accepted when I was wholesaling. It didn't matter. And I love the part that says, great investors celebrate the decision-making process first and the outcome second. The outcome doesn't matter if you got the first part right. Sometimes you hit a dry spell. Sometimes the market's hot. You got to stick to criteria till the right thing that pops up. You do have to make sure your criteria is reasonable though, right? I I see this all the time where people are trying, you know, trying to get 30, 35% off. And then they knock another 10% off that just to be on the safe diet. And then they add another 10, 15% to their rehab budget. And next thing you know, they're basically trying to get a property at 50% minus ARV. Probably not likely to get that. If you catch my drift here, back to the book, law three, timing matters. Be the first or last person to make an offer. An essential component of finding a seller who will meet your terms is timing. If at all possible, you want to try and represent the seller's first or last chance to sell. You're looking for the advantage of an uncompetitive environment. When other investors are vying for the same property, the very nature of competitive offers can make it difficult to achieve your terms. The best lead generation programs of many real estate uh, investors are designed to put them in the best possible position to be the seller's first chance to sell. They market and prospect for sellers who do not yet know they are sellers. They are competition adverse and love to see ask the question, have you ever considered selling that property? They also have a hair trigger when it comes to properties that meet their criteria. Out of the book. means move fast. The second you know it's a deal, don't fuck around. Lock that thing up. Back to the book. They don't hesitate to take action and make the right offer. While time will tell if the seller will accept their terms, they would rather have the offer fall through than risk competitive offers that almost certainly will drive up the price. There is no risk in this decisive action. The property meets their criteria and they only make offers that meet their terms. The very nature of real estate offers is that what the investors are buying is an option to buy the property. If during the property inspection, the realities of the property no longer meet their expectations, they can walk away. If you've participated in an auction, you've seen how the law of being last plays out. Serious investors rarely bid before the auctioneer counts down with going once, going twice. They understand that most of their competition has been weeded out, and if their price terms can still be met, they make their offer. Also, they rarely stay in the bidding process for long. Great investors pick their moments, and when they can, they choose to be first or last. Not in the book. That last part, think of like eBay. You didn't make your bid until the last three seconds, one second, if you can manage it. You know what I'm saying? Better to be first, though. But if you can't be first, it is best to be last. Law number four, it's a numbers game. The quality is in the quantity. Great lead generation in any business is about overkill over time. The more properties you look at and the more sellers you interview, the greater the odds are that you'll find something great. Millionaire real estate investors understand this, and they cast a wide net for opportunities. The quality is in the quantity. The quality is in the quantity. Don't get attached to any one lead or any 20 leads. We surveyed our investors to get a sense of the number of opportunities they investigate to find or make a deal. Statistically, it broke down like this. For every 30 properties they found that met their basic criteria and were worth investigating, suspects, about 10 warranted serious investigation prospects of those 10, only about three were worth making an offer on. And because their terms were as strict as their criteria, only one of those offers turned into a done deal. Call it the 30, 10, three, one lead generation ratio for experienced investors. Beginning investors will have to look at three to five times as many properties to find legitimate prospects. Why so many millionaire investor, George May, Mead Mead Hoof mead I don't know says it's about developing the knowledge you need to make good decisions. He's right. Your criteria are developed and refined through the process of looking at properties, lots of them that meet your basic standards. Over time, your sense of what constitutes a great opportunity becomes more precise and the numbers start to turn in your favor. With clear criteria, your marketing and prospecting will yield increasingly qualified leads. Whatever your personal lead generation ratio is, one thing is certain. Lead generation for real estate investment is a numbers game. You cast a wide net, your chances of netting a winner will improve. Law number five, be organized and systematic. Protect your time and your money. The final law of lead generation is about treating it like a business. It's about protecting your time and money by being systematic and organized when you're looking at a real estate invest when you're looking at real estate investment opportunities or prospecting for them what's at risk is your time considering all the things you could do instead your time is a precious commodity moreover when you're marketing for opportunities something even more tangible is at risk the money you spend on promotions and advertising that's precious too the key difference between the top performers and the rest lies in their approach to lead generation the best sales professionals are systematic. They dedicate a set amount of time each week to lead generation and block their time so that nothing prevents them from pursuing this key business activity. For real estate investing, I've discovered that it takes the same kind of focus. You have to set aside dedicated time systematically each week to prospect for leads, implement your marketing plan, and track the results. Being organized is about tracking and sourcing leads. When people call you for an opportunity, ask them how they heard about you. When you get the answer recorded, it. whether it is a result of your local market or your personal talent, some of your prospecting and marketing efforts will yield better results than others will. The people who send you opportunities most often should get a disproportionate amount of your attention. Those are the first people you contact and the ones you touch regularly. Similarly, The marketing efforts that generate the most legitimate leads should get a disproportionate amount of your time and money. Unless you're tracking your efforts and recording the results, you may never know how best to spend your time and money to find great investment opportunities. Think of it as connecting the dots. Many people don't make the connection between the time and money they spend looking for opportunity and the financial results they achieve. As a result, blocking their time and setting aside money for lead generation can feel like a waste of time and resources, and the process of tracking their lead generation efforts can feel boring. Therefore, these things don't get the attention they deserve. If you make the commitment to being very systematic in your lead generation and just a little organized, the connections will become clear and exciting. You begin to see not just the time and money you save, but also the gains. That's when your efforts take on a different aura. That's when you realize you're not just prospecting, marketing, and tracking the results, you're actually engaged in a fundamental wealth-building activity that changes, that is changing your life. All right, not in the book. There are easier ways to track all this stuff, right? So there are multiple CRMs that you can use. I am currently using Follow Up Boss. For everything, right? But there's more than just Follow Up Boss. But in Follow Up Boss, there's a plan where I can pay for where I get my own phone number that I can call and text from directly from Follow Up Boss. So if I have the discipline, which I do, to go in and do it through Follow Up Boss, and or log the calls that come into my regular cell phone, Follow Up Boss will automatically do all the tracking for me and give me a report. When I started as a wholesaler, I was using Zoho and working for Steve. I kind of created my own spreadsheet to track this. And what I did was number of calls made, number of appointments set, number of contracts signed, number of closings. I think that's the bare minimum you need to do. And if you're doing direct mail, throw out number of direct mail pieces, right? So you have to at least track those things. But if you use something like follow up boss or any other number of CRMs, tracking is one of the features that are in there. And if you, if you can train yourself to use it in a disciplined manner, it can tell you. So I'll give you an example. When I started wholesaling with Steve, it took me 20 calls to get three appointments of which I would get 1.5 to 1.8 of those contracts. I know it's just the way, way it works out and then close like 1.3 of them. And by the time I ended, it was the market was significantly more competitive, but I was better at getting contracts, right? Cause when I started in the beginning, so it's taking me about 30 to get one, um, to get too closed. So 2.2, a little over 2.2 close. So the only reason I knew that is because I was tracking, So then when you're making the calls, you know, but you don't have to do this manually. You can use a system to do this. If you can discipline yourself to using the system back to the book, the flow of your lead generation model, when you take a step back and look at all the pieces, you can see the natural flow of how lead generation works. See the chart on the facing page. All right. So if we go to page 219, figure 51, there's a flow chart. All right. And in the middle of this flow chart is a square and it says your work and leads networks. And there's four circles around it. It says know your criteria, identify people who can connect you with property, prospect and market for leads, separate suspects from prospects. All right. It's a game of moving around the four circles and constantly engaging your work network and leads network with only one goal in mind, finding a property that meets your criteria. Once you find one, you will be ready to follow the acquisition model to see if you can acquire it on your terms. The acquisition model of the millionaire real estate investor. Up to this point, you've invested your time. Now it's time to invest your money. You're at the real estate investor's moment of truth, the place where dreams come true or not, the place where financial wealth is made or lost. It's time to make money. How do millionaires make money? It's simple. They make their money going in. By following the acquisition model and buying right, they virtually guarantee the success of their investments. This is what you want to do. You want to learn to follow the acquisition model of the millionaire real estate investor. If you can purchase property with enough profit built in, you will have ensured at the time you buy that your investments will make you money. This is important because once you begin to make real estate acquisitions, your performance will be recorded permanently and forever. No replays or do-overs. If you stick to the acquisition model, you won't need any. Earlier in this book, we used the phrase persistent effort, patient money. This moment of acquisition is where we were pointing you. If you have been persistent in your efforts, you can be more confident in investing your money. Your patience will have paid off. Many would-be investors do not get this. They are so eager to be real estate investors, they just hop in and buy something. They attempt acquisitions before they know enough to buy wisely or safely. They put their money in play too soon and put themselves at risk. By sharing the well-earned wisdom and real-life experiences of our millionaire real estate investors, we have been both preparing your mind and informing your actions to get your investment plans launched. You now understand the path of money. You've budgeted so you have money to invest, and you set up your personal balance sheet so you can track your progress you know how real estate investing can increase your net worth through equity buildup and cash flow growth. You've begun to build your work network so that you will have a team you need to mentor you, support you, and service your investments. You've developed your criteria and you're lead generating for it. Now you have leads, prospective opportunities to invest in, and you will have to start making decisions. The decisions you make and the actions you take in in these critical moments can have a profound impact on your financial wealth building. Our fifth model, the acquisitions model, gives you the framework and readiness to analyze the investment opportunities and make great deals. All right, not in the book. One thing they're right about is you definitely make your money when you buy. Um, that's very important upfront and without stretching or wishing or hoping the market. Um, continues to go off. I like the part where it says, if you have been persistent in your efforts, you could be more confident in investing your money. Your patience will have paid off. There are a lot of eager investors to get in, but one thing I've also noticed is a lot of people who sabotage themselves and never get in. I can think of enough people on two of my hands who come to RDI and have for years and still haven't done anything. So while he's telling you, Definitely be patient and be careful. Don't be so scared you're afraid to act too. And we were talking about that earlier in a few, a few pages. Once you know your criteria and it matches your criteria and you have that discipline, move. Don't wait. So it's a fine line of doing absolutely nothing until the perfect thing comes along and then moving as fast as you possibly can, if that makes any sense. All right, back to the book. Cash or cash flow and equity. In real estate investing, there are only two fundamental acquisition strategies, buy for cash and buy for cash flow and equity buildup. There are many specializations and variations within each of these basic strategies, and they often are referred to by various names such as optioning, assuming, rehabbing, long-term investing, quick turn investing, wholesaling, wrapping, lease optioning, and fixing and flipping. However, all those names just complicate the picture. No matter what you call them, these strategies boil down to one simple fact. Investors invest for cash or invest for cash flow and equity. One is a cash-building strategy and the other is a wealth-building one. All you need to do is decide which of these two strategies you want or need to use and then follow the model for it. Experienced millionaire real estate investors often make their investment decisions often make their investment decision-making seem so easy. They can look at a property, do some quick calculations on the back of an envelope or in their heads, and tell you whether or not it would be a good deal or not, along with how they do it. This is somewhat frustrating to observe because you can't really follow their thought process and the way they arrive at their answers. At times, it can look like they don't have a process at all. What we came to understand was that millionaires do have a method of analysis they follow without fail. It's based on their experience, and they apply it intuitively. It's like a rule of thumb, except with lots of thumbs all working together. You could call it a rule of hand that sometimes seems like a sleight of hand a trick casual observers can't follow. But it's there, and when you put it on paper, you begin to see the detailed step-by-step process they follow. It tells them what to do and allows them to make good decisions quickly and efficiently. The fundamental process they follow is the acquisition model of the millionaire real estate investor see the chart below and we're on page 222 figure 52 all right and on the there's there's two sides here there's a cash on um, and there's cash flow and equity on the cash side you have profit margin with arrows going up and volume with arrows going down and step 1 is find and refer 2 control and assign 3 buy and sell 4 Buy, improve, and sell. So those are all different things you can do for cash, right? Send a referral, assign it, do a quick turnaround, buy a sell, or buy, fix, and flip, right? On the cash flow and equity, you have lease option, buy and hold, buy improve and hold, right? So that's what they're talking about. All right, cash. For some investors, because of their goals or current circumstances, cash is king. If you want cash, you have four basic options for accumulating it find and refer, control and assign, buy and sell, and buy and prove and sell. If you're looking for cash and don't want to invest any money or even write a contract, you can accomplish that through find and refer. You can become a scout. As a scout, you seek out good investment opportunities and then bring them to investors who are ready and willing to acquire those properties. In many cases, they'll be willing to pay you a finder's fee if the opportunities are good, and they would not have located them otherwise. This is probably the fastest way to earn cash, and by far the option you could do the most of in terms of numbers. The drawback is that the money paid per transaction is the least among the four options. The second fastest option is to earn cash as control and assign. Lock it up. This means you gain an option or an assignable contract on an investment property, then you find someone else to acquire it. Since you control the property, you have negotiation power. This method has a little better margin than find and refer, but the volume potential is a little less. The third option is buy and sell, which you acquire the property, make no improvements, and put it back on the market at a higher price. Your profit margin begins to improve with this option. The issue now is that you'll have to spend more time to do these deals and the volume will be less. The payoff is the profit. The fourth option is buy improve, and sell. This cash building method can offer even better margins than buy and sell, but it takes considerably more time and money and there'll be likely even fewer deals to do. You can see from the acquisition model shown in the chart on the facing page that the find and refer can provide you with lots of fast cash deals, but usually pays the least per deal. Whereas buy, improve and sell can pay the most per deal, but usually requires considerably more of your investment money to do. There are rare cases where control and assign can pay off big, but those deals are extremely hard to find. The truth is that you always should be on the lookout for opportunities, and when a property matches up with one of the four cash building methods, you should consider moving forward to make some cash from it. In the end, the primary purpose of the four cash building strategies is to generate immediate cash income, which can still which can be used as earned income or put back into play along the path of money. Many of the investors we talked with at one time or another use all these methods methods to launch their real estate investing career. When they did them right, which they will warn you is not as easy as it often is made out to be, they will be able to build up some cash reserves, which they could use as down payments on income properties. They were taking cash and reinvesting it for cash flow and equity. Long-term financial wealth building. Cash flow and equity. If you want cash flow and equity, you have three options for building and attaining them. Lease option, buy and hold, and buy, improve, and hold. And the game of cash flow and equity, an option that requires little or no money is the lease option. By the way, you can lease option in, lease option out, or do both. Lease option in is when you negotiate to lease a property from the seller, usually two to five years, with the options to buy at the end of the period at a pre-negotiated price you may or may not have put money down. As part of your lease option contract agreement, you've secured the right to lease this property to a lease-to-own buyer, and that's exactly what you do, except that you lease the property to a tenant for more than the original lease. The difference between the rent you collect and the lease payment you make is your cash flow. Any difference between the pre-negotiated sales price and the market value at the end of the option period is your equity if you choose to buy the property. This is essentially a lease option and wrapped inside your lease option. The key is to have a renter lined up before you agree to lease option the property. Lease option out is when you rent a property you own to a tenant, possibly someone who needs a few years to clean up his or her credit, with an option to buy at the end of the lease period. You may gain increased cash flow during the lease period and, depending on the pre-negotiated price, gain equity. As you can see, if you lease option in and at the same time enter into a lease option out with your renter, you're doing both at once. The second way to create cash flow and equity is to buy and hold. In this case, you simply buy the property and lease it out. In some cases, you may purchase a property that already has tenants who have signed lease agreements. This can be less complicated than lease option in, but you are now actually the owner of the property and that brings both risk and reward. Also, you no longer are bound to a predetermined sales price and may choose to sell the property anytime or hold it for cash flow and equity buildup as long as you like. The last and possibly best way to build cash flow and equity is to buy, improve, and hold. This looks just like buy and hold, but because improvements must or can be made, there's an opportunity for an additional upside in terms of higher rent or better equity buildup. Some improvements will be physical in the sense that you repair the property or add features or amenities. You can also improve it through zoning or use, such as converting residential zoning to commercial or apartments to condos. Because some of your physical improvements may be classified as capital improvements by the IRS, they may effectively reduce the taxes you pay on the cash flow you earn from the property. In the end, the three cash flow and equity building strategies all work to generate unearned income and increased net worth. Many of the millionaire investors we talk with were very clear about a few things regarding cash, cash flow, and equity buildup. They were very clear that the opportunity in real estate to generate cash is great, but it's also a job. The moment you stop buying and selling, your income goes away. They also believe that building equity and generating cash flow were the ways to create wealth. They also were very clear that each strategy has a formula that cannot be violated. They knew that the dollars are in the details and the profits are in the pennies. They understood that if they didn't manage the process tightly, the big money might escape them. They were right on all counts. When you take a step back and look at all the ways you can earn cash or build cash flow and equity, the two fundamental ways that stand out above all the others are buy and sell and buy and hold, especially when they include improvements. They are foundational strategies that, once learned, open the doors to understanding all the other strategies. Let's take a closer look at each one. Terms for buy and sell. In the buy and sell strategy, you are looking for one thing, cash. The goal is to ensure a net profit payoff within weeks or at most months by buying a property and then turning around and selling it. Although this method usually has the biggest payoffs, it comes with one big challenge. You must know your numbers, lots of them. And if you're going to buy, improve and sell, there are even more numbers you need to know and understand. Your numbers have to be accurate going in. You are making a series of predictions, all of which you have to turn have to turn out pretty much as forecast for the deal to be a success. You better be right or you better have built in a serious margin for error. The terms worksheet for the buy and sell on the next page allows you to do this in as systematical way as possible. It is your checklist for making a good investment. Each transaction is unique and you'll have to deal with its quirks on a very short term basis. With buy and sell, you need the ability to assess the situation as it unfolds and respond quickly to the contingencies. Take a moment and read through this worksheet. You'll notice that there are many acronyms with buy and sell. ARV, FARV, COP, COR, CC, and COS. Each one represents a number you will need to estimate with great accuracy, and they will factor into your actual purchase offer. These are the details that when done right yield the dollars you're after. You can see in this worksheet that there is a primary purchase term section that shows you what you will offer for a property and what investment you will make. Then there are four sub worksheets that constitute the operating term section. Each sub worksheet is used to determine a key number that will be carried up to the purchase terms and used to determine what will have to happen for this to be a buy it right deal. There are two very important safety margins or factors that must be determined as you use the buy and sell investment strategy. First, think quick sale. Rick Villani is the founder of Austin-based Home Fixers, the national contracting company for the real estate investment industry in any given market. Home Fixers consults with dozens of investors each month and sees firsthand the painful experience of investors who overestimate the selling price. Rick told us overestimating the market and asking too high a sales price could add weeks, even months to your selling time. The price a property might sell for versus the price it will quickly sell for can be the difference in controlling your carrying costs and, most importantly, making an accurate initial calculation about expected profits. The expected profits establish the initial offer price on the house. So when forecasting your sell price, don't just consider the after repair value. Consider also the fast after repair value, FARV. Rick's formula for FARV is two weeks. What will sell the house within the first two weeks on the market? The difference between ARV, what the house might sell for, and FARV, what the house will sell for within two weeks uh, being on the market, is the fast sell factor. The second safety factor is called your discount profit margin and is the actual margin from which you make your profit on the investment this number is critical because it also has to give you breathing room your margin for error in case something unforeseen happens this could include hidden repairs unexpected bad weather contractor delays and any other number of examples of murphy's law what can go wrong will go wrong like in detroit sorry eric your fucking furnace and not water tank being installed all the time right I have a Detroit factor I throw in. I even call it a Detroit factor. Back to the book. Those with the most experienced in this method of real estate investing feel that the discount profit margin needs to be as high as 30% of your property price. As the price of your property increases, they believe that this margin usually becomes a flat dollar amount, such as thirty dollars or $40,000, since 30% figures may not hold up for properties costing in excess of $150,000. In either case, they agree that you must establish this margin going in. You have to be accurate and conservative in all your cost estimates, assessments, and eventual market value, and estimate the price point that would sell the property quickly. The sub-worksheets are fairly self-explanatory. As much as anything, they are meant to be reminders so you never omit these important costs in your thinking. For example... The cost of purchase sub worksheet reminds you to account for the cost of potentially rewarding the scout who brought you the deal, paying your inspector to walk through the property with you, and or other closing costs you might incur as the buyer. Using the cost of repair sub worksheet instantly transforms your terms worksheet, buy and sell into a terms worksheet, buy and improve and sell, an entirely different kind of transaction. The cost of repair sub-worksheet is also slightly different in that as summary worksheet as well. The five main repair categories, cosmetic minor, cosmetic major, structural, fixtures and appliances, and landscaping have detailed sub-worksheets of their own. See Appendix D for a detailed version of this worksheet. For example, for cosmetic minor repairs, you might include everything from carpets and paint to adding new hardware to the cabinets and crown molding in the living room. Because there are so many things to consider, it pays to have a detailed checklist. It also pays to account for a contingency factor here, or Detroit factor. One of our favorite and most helpful investors, Bob Guest, was very fond of reminding us that every house has a surprise. And he was absolutely right. The cost of repairs sub-worksheet is where you account for that contingency factor as it relates to repairs. The carrying cost sub worksheet is where you'll estimate the taxes, fees, utilities, debt service, and upkeep you have to pay from the time you buy the property till the time you sell it. Remember that these are all time-based estimates. You'll need your contractor to tell you how quickly he or she can complete the expected repairs, then pad that time to account for bad weather, worker unavailability, and other potential delays. This is your repair time. Next, you have to count for all the time it takes to show, sell, and close on the property. Many of the good investors we talk with conservatively budget for three to four months of carrying costs for homes with only minor repairs. Repairing and selling can take much longer than you might expect. Not back in the book. I always tell people it takes twice as long. If you think you're going to get it to the market and sold in 90 days, good luck. Probably not. Maybe you will. Gonna need at least six months. And when I was borrowing money, I wrote most of mine up for a year just in case. Because it's better to know going in than to get stuck and be short. I had that happen a couple times and it's not fun. Back to the book. Many of the homes targeted by buy and sell investors are often at the high, low end, or lower middle market. This means you're not always selling to buyers with lots of cash for closing and perfect credit. The great offer you accept may fall through because of financing or credit issues. This could mean starting over, and that means time. The cost of sales sub-worksheet is appropriately last. This is where you must account for any real estate agent commissions if you enlist the help of an agent to market and sell the property. You'll probably want to include a home warranty for a few hundred dollars since it can give you and your buyer both security against the unknown, other costs of sale include title insurance, origination fees, and the like. All the typical closing costs associated with traditional financing. A real estate agent, title officer, or mortgage loan officer can help you calculate those costs correctly. This can be a big gotcha for a buy sell investor who doesn't prepare for the right type of buyer. Because you could be dealing in homes on the lower end of the market, you may be asked to pay for the buyer's closing costs, your buyer may have great credit or be willing to meet your asking price, but you but have no cash for closing costs. Account for that and you'll be protected in the long run. Buy, improve, and sell for maximum return. Finally, when it comes to buy, improve, and sell, you should be aware that you have a window of opportunity to achieve a maximum return. See the chart below. Understanding this window makes you an expert in maximizing your returns when improving real estate investments. On the front end, you know that you will have to invest a certain amount of money and make a certain amount of improvements just to break even. As you begin to invest in improvements, even with your discount profit margin taken into place, you may reach a point where the costs of improvement have chewed away your margin. Selling before this point, while the property is underimproved and not yet ready for resale, will lower your profit margin and even cost you money. At a certain point, you realize that your improvements reach critical mass. The point of your minimum return or maximum loss and subsequent improvements will earn you more than they cost. From this point on, as you make additional improvements, if they are the right improvements, you will increase the market value of the property. Let me give you an example not in the book. Some areas... Having four bathrooms gets you an additional $15,000. So if you had three bathrooms and it only cost you $5,000 to add a fourth bathroom, then by investing that $5,000, you would get a $10,000 return on that. That's what they're talking about. And that's an extreme example, but I just want to give you a simple example. Back to the book. However, be aware that this increase in value has a practical limit what the market will bear. From here on, any additional investment and improvements will not add much, if any, market value to the property. You have reached the point of maximum return on investment. It is now time to avoid over-improving the property and put it on the resale market fast, cash in your profit margin, and move on to the next investment. Not in the book. People typically don't make this have this problem. Most investors don't over-rehab. You should be careful not to not to over rehab, right? He's right. What he's saying, you should look at the comps. You should look at the pictures. You should know what every house sold for. You should know if it had granite countertops. Was the kitchen new? How many bathrooms were they? Were they all on the first floor? Were the bathrooms on the second floor? Was it an attached garage? Right? You get my point, right? But most investors don't over improve, in my experience. Most investors. Under improved, right back to the book, knowing which improvements at what cost will bring the maximum return is the ultimate skill in this game. It's a game of getting the highest return from the least investment and improvements investors with construction experience or those with do it yourself skills and a solid knowledge of repair work can do well with buy, improve and sell. Not only do they enter the game with an informed idea of the cost and the need to do common repairs, they are capable of doing many of those repairs themselves. This sweat equity allows them to exchange their time and labor for reduced expenses and larger profit margins. Most people, however, will need the advice of an experienced contractor and the help of a solid team of repair and remodeling professionals to optimize the strategy. Terms for buy and hold. We are now ready to consider the true financial wealth building strategic option of the real estate investor, buy and hold. This is a long-term strategy that can bring you maximum equity and personal net worth. Ultimately, it's a strategy you will want to use and master. Buy and hold epitomizes what we learned in the financial model about the power of real estate investments to create equity buildup and cash flow growth. The buy and hold illustration above highlights the primary financial considerations to bear in mind for your long-term acquisition strategy. You're buying properties for appreciation, Cash flow, or preferably both. You can give primary emphasis to appreciation, quadrant one, or cash flow, quadrant four, or both, quadrant two. What you want to avoid is any of the investment options that fall in quadrant three low or no cash flow and low or no appreciation. This is not the path of the millionaire real estate investor because the risks are way too high. Millionaires buy quadrant two properties. And avoid quadrant three properties. Um, not in the book. A good example of of what might be um, a number four would be like a I don't know, like sometimes like a two bedroom uh, will rent well, but will appraise lower. So then you don't get appreciation. When you go to sell it, less people are interested in a two-bedroom than they are in a three-bedroom. So you're more likely to sell to a landlord than you would have otherwise, depending on what margin when you're in. What they're talking about when they're looking at number two is, and earlier in the book, they're talking about being in that middle end, slightly lower middle end of the market, right, where there's opportunity for growth. So not starting too high from the get-go, but where you can still make good money renting it out. Like that's where they're trying to hit. Right. Skip three. No appreciation, no cash flow, no good. All right. Back to the book. Remember, a great real estate investment carries almost no risk. It is based on the underlying fundamentals of attaining price and rent appreciation. Buy it right going in, and those fundamentals will work relentlessly in your favor. Buy and hold is just as much a numbers game as buy and sell is, but you're letting the results happen over a longer, more predictable period of time. I would say probably more uh, tax advantageous too. Doing it right at the beginning, making your money going in is just as critical here, and there is a process to follow to help make this happen a pre investment checklist. We call it a term worksheet, buy and hold. See the chart on the next page. Just as with buy and sell, there is a purchase term section and an operating term section. The four subsections of the operating terms guide you in estimating and calculating the numbers that will be placed in the purchase term section. This will determine what you can offer from the property and what you will accept. Once again, these terms are financial and you must become a master of the financial terms that make a real estate investment work. For openers, you must have an accurate figure for the current market value of the property as well as some well-supported evidence that home price appreciation will continue for that price range in that area. Next, you must establish your discount profit margin up front. This is your basic foundation for buy it right. The margin we recommend is at least 20%, more if you can get it, just as with buy and sell for investments over about $150,000. You want to pick a dollar amount, twenty dollars to $25,000 in the typical range, since this percentage will be hard to obtain in the middle or high-end properties. But if you're doing this, you're probably not doing it in that area anyway. Purchasing the property with this margin gives you security and often means that you will achieve positive net cash flow from the very beginning. The vast majority of millionaire real estate investors believe that having positive cash flow is critical. Some are willing to do without discounts or even deal with short-term negative cash flows if they get solid appreciation. It happens all the time, but requires a lot of knowledge and skill to successfully pull off. However, in the overwhelming majority of cases, millionaire investors go for both, and we recommend that you do the same thing. Not in the book. One of the reasons why I moved to Michigan from Washington State, what he's talking about here. So where I lived in Washington State, most of the deals were done on the west coast of Washington, and the play was, because these properties were all, they're even higher now, but they're all like $500,000, you know what I'm saying, is they would buy them, rent them out at a loss because the rent didn't cover the value of the homes, but they would plan on holding it for three years. And during that time they would risk or venture or hopefully knew that appreciation would rise over that time. And the depreciation was greater than the negative difference of all the payments they made and made the deal worth doing to me. This seemed fucking insane, which is why I moved to Detroit back to the book. The second big decision in the purchase term section is the down payment. In some cases, the lender on a mortgage for an investment property will require you, the investor, to put down 20%. They want you to be sure you have the money as well as theirs at risk. Because you won't be living in the property, they want extra assurance that you are equally committed to the investment. If you're going to be living in the home, even though you're doing it as part of your investment strategy, we call this buy and live, you may be able to purchase it with little or no money down. Um, they do have some loans that'll do 15%. This is in 2019, but they're right. I would assume if you just, I tell everybody 20% and then sometimes you get lucky based on credit or that lender, but I would say, you know, 20% is a good number. Back to the book, the same calculations for cost of purchase and cost of repair are done here that were done with buy and sell. They are straightforward and you can use the same detailed repair estimate worksheet as in appendix D. What is unique to the Buy and Hold Worksheet is a net operating income sub-worksheet. This is where you will come to know the numbers that make a residential income property work for you. You'll have to determine the current monthly rental rates in your local area for the type of property you are considering. That's what you put in on the line for gross rental income. While many long-time investors use a 1% rule of thumb, you'll get as your monthly rent an equal amount to 1% of the property's market value. If you must guess, we recommend a more conservative ratio of 0.8% instead of counting on a $100,000 home to rent for $100,000 a month. You conservatively use 800 dollars for your rental estimate. No rule of thumb is good enough for estimating this critical number in your acquisition worksheet. You need to know what that particular property has rented for in the past or what similar properties you rent for in that neighborhood. While you're doing your due diligence on the property, ask for copies of the lease, call the numbers on the area rental signs, and research the internet and MLS and newspapers for market rents. Your ballpark estimate using our 0.8% rule may have been fine for making an initial valuation or even an offer, but the real rental value, which is determined through due diligence and market research, will be a deal-breaking factor in your ongoing negotiations. Not in the book. Definitely figure out the rents. At least if you're looking at some place like Metro Detroit where you have so many different housing markets and so many different ARVs and so many different rents. If you were just to take the 1% or the 0.8 rule, you would it would take a lot of neighborhoods out that would make you money. So when he's saying figure out what things are actually renting for, he really means it. Back to the book. Having established your best projection for gross rental income. You must allow for vacancies, time when the property is unoccupied and you are not receiving rental income. We have used 6 to 8% or about three to four weeks annually as a vacancy factor in our model, but you will have to determine this locally and take into account current rental market conditions. I always use 10% or higher. When you subtract your vacancy factor from the gross rental income, you have your net rental income. From that, you will subtract all your expenses, your monthly operating costs, which will leave you with your net operating in- income, NOI. What you now have is a number that will tell you what you will be able to pay in debt service, the monthly principal and interest on your, of your mortgage loan, and what cash flow you will have left. This is a critical point in the buy and hold acquisition model. If the property does not produce cash flow with the numbers you have, you will have to lower your offer appropriately or seek special financing. The right terms on your loan, interest rate, and length of payback can often make a significant difference. The investors we talked to were extremely creative in their financing solutions. They understood how to take advantage of a variable rate and adjustable rate conventional mortgages to get immediate cash flow on the deal. Often they sought seller financing, which allowed them to set the terms that were unique to each deal. All these strategies may remain, may require trade-offs, so be aware of this at all times. Shortcuts that get you cash flow often take away from your equity buildup. As a simple way to illustrate this, we create a chart to illustrate the dramatic difference in the equity buildup using a 15-year conventional loan versus a 30-year conventional loan. In general, shorter terms on your mortgage loans will lead to higher monthly loan payments. They'll have a direct negative impact on your cash flow, but a major positive impact on your equity buildup. As you can see, after 16 years, the 15-year loan is completely paid off, which means you'll experience a big jump in cash flow. In contrast, at year 16, the 30-year loan still has 75% of the principal debt remaining. Millionaire real estate investor Ron Garber adapted adopted a strategy of acquiring a single property and then aggressively paying down the principal by using any income he had and his wife had together. They acquired foreclosure properties in California and effectively turned 30 year mortgages into 12 and 24 month mortgages. Admittedly, the first few houses were the most difficult and required the strictest personal budgeting, but they stuck to the strategy because they couldn't stand having debt. They wanted their assets free and clear And so only when they had paid off one property fully would they acquire another one and then apply all that cash flow from all the paid off properties to the new one. Each property that was paid off accelerated the process. In a matter of years, the Garbers assembled an impressive portfolio of investment properties that generated big cash flow with almost no financial liabilities. While these debt-adverse investors represent an extreme version of equity buildup, their aggressive strategy made them millionaire real estate investors and gave them financial freedom. As we discussed in the section of the financial model, you don't need the cash flow today. Why not reinvest it for tomorrow? Reinvestment can put you on the fast track to financial freedom. With your net operating income and principal and interest sub-worksheet completed, you are now able to plug in the final pieces of your purchase terms at the top. This is where you're considering four things at once, the best purchase price, what kind of loan to use, how the seller might provide additional help with the financing, and whether you want to do this deal. In the terms worksheet shows you that the numbers will work with conventional 15 or 30 year financing. You will be willing to make an offer. If the seller is unwilling to meet these terms, or if you need additional low cost owner financing to make it work, and the seller is not willing to do that, you will not be able to accept the deal. With your options exhausted, you will, with no attachment to the property, move on in your criteria-based lead generation. If the seller agrees to what you have offered, based on your thorough analysis of the numbers on the terms worksheet, you have a deal and will make the investment. Acquisition worksheets, real-life examples. To see how the acquisition worksheets can be used in your investment decision-making, let's look at two real-life examples. We will be dealing with the same property, but from two different investment points of view. In the first case, we'll be using the buy and sell worksheet, and in the second case, we'll be using the buy and hold worksheet. Our target property is $125,000 single family home. Whether we use buy and ho- buy, sell and buy and hold, this example will involve cost of purchase and cost of repairs in the buy and sell analysis, case number one. We'll be focusing on our fast after repair value, carrying costs, and costs of sale. In the buy and hold analysis, case two, we will be focusing on our net operating income and our principal and income debt service. In both cases, we'll be looking for and factoring in a discount profit margin of 30% for the buy and sell and 20% for the buy and hold. Finally, we're going to assume that we have about $28,000 to put toward either investment. The buy and sell worksheet in action. First, let's look at the property using the terms worksheet. Buy and sell. See the chart on the next page. The purchase terms are described at the top of the sheet. The sub-worksheets below to get the primary numbers. We have estimated the market value of the property to be $125,000. The cost of purchase, the expenses incurred at closing, excluding sales price is $925, which includes the inspector's fee and the closing costs. The cost repair sub-worksheet details the work you will need to have done for the house to sell for the maximum return on your investment. The house's interior needs new paint, new carpeting throughout, and a good cleaning, $3,200. The roof needs to be repaired, which you managed to do for $1,800. The kitchen is also a mess, and you install new composite countertops, $300. Repaint the cabinets and update the pulls and hinges, $250. To top it all off, you install a new oven and dishwasher. To be safe, you add 10%, $640, $5 as a contingency factor. The total cost of repair is $7,095. In the carrying cost sub worksheet, we are allowing for three months worth of these expenses. You have estimated that all the repair work can be done in a month and that it will take another month to sell and another month to close. Therefore, you are allowing for three months of taxes at $250 per month The cost of your insurance policy, $350. And three months of utilities at $100 per month. Since you have $28,000 to invest, you will need to borrow $30,000. Your private lending lending source is going to charge you 1% a month interest, which will total $900 for three months. The total carrying cost thus will be $2,420. You can see that any additional carrying time will Costs you $800 a month. So getting it sold quickly is important. Finally, or that's what we call the alligator. You get it? Nom nom nom. Finally, you will look at the cost of sales sub worksheet to be certain that you have planned for these expenses. You've allowed for 6% agent commissions on the planned $112,500 sales price, a home warranty, $485, title insurance, and related fees an allowance for buyer closing costs of $2,000. While you may be able to close the sale without incurring all these expenses, you need to allow for them. If it costs less to repair, carry, or sell the property, you make more. As you now look closely at the terms worksheet, buy and sell, you see that you'll be able to offer $58,000 for the property. If the seller accepts this, you have a deal. If not, you will have to move on. There is... There is... Ooh there is little wiggle room in your calculations. While you have allowed for some contingencies, this is the only price at which you can be confident of getting your proper return on investment. You are putting in almost 28000 of your own money and the liability of an additional $30,000 loan to achieve a net profit of $33,750. If anything goes wrong and any of your costs go up, the profit margin can be reduced quickly. Since you are a disciplined real estate investor who knows your numbers, the purchase price will be $57,950 or it won't be a deal. You could always accept less, right? (laughs) The buy and hold worksheet in action. Let's look at the same uh, $125,000 property using the terms worksheet, buy and hold. Again, the purchase terms are described at the top of the worksheet with sub-worksheets below to get the primary number. Since you are following the Millionaire Real Estate Investor's guidance, you will need to get a 20% discount on the property, about $25,000, and therefore will offer $100,000 to buy it. You have $28,000 to invest, so you'll be able to put 20% down, $20,000, and finance, 80%, $80, $80,000. As in the buy and sell model, your cost of purchase is nine hundred twenty five dollars And your cost of repair is $7,095. Since you'll be holding the property and renting it, you will not be dealing with either closing costs or resale or carrying costs for the holding period. You will have ongoing carrying costs, but they will need to be, but they will be paid from the rental income. The net operating income sub worksheet is the place where your analysis of the investment must be sharp. A quick glance reveals the three biggest expenses are property taxes, insurance, and vacancy. The first is impossible to avoid or control. Taxes vary greatly from municipality to municipality. Ask your local tax assessor's office or your real estate agent for local taxation rates. Taxation is theft. Insurance also fluctuates greatly depending on the type and location of property. When you call to get quotes, remember to indicate that the property will be an investment property since that will affect the rates. Like For instance... And most cities in Michigan, well, all cities in Michigan, we have homestead and non-homestead. This is where Michigan pretends to care about renters by fucking them, by charging the landlord more property taxes so he can pass it on to his renter. Where if you're a homeowner, it's about a third less. The exact millages you can just go to the city website, right? So if you just want to know, go Southfield City website, Detroit City website, go through and you will see the millage rate. For non homestead and homestead, and then you can figure it out right there. I'm sure something if you're listening somewhere else, I'm sure the exact same thing exists somewhere else. And if all else fails, call your title company, man. If you got a great title company or a great real estate agent, they can figure it out, right? Especially title company. I can do math, but your average real estate agent's not gonna math. But if you have a good title company, they'll figure it out in a heartbeat. They can they do that shit all day, every day. All right, back to the book. Your net operating income is really what dictates the kind of financing you can afford to select. In our example, the 30-year mortgage loan is the only one that actually will generate cash flow. Even then, the sample property will net the investor only $7.79 a month, less than $100 a year. These numbers are sobering indeed, and they illustrate how difficult it can be to find the kinds of great deals that generate cash flow of $200, $300, or even $500 a month. Rent, as we'll explain, in own a million is your most powerful lever in this equation. If you rented this property for just 2% of the market price more, the frequently talked about but not easily achieved 1% rule, you'd net $242.79 a month and $2,913.52 a year the very first year. We have looked at this real estate investment using each of the two terms worksheets using real numbers. If you want to buy, improve, and sell. You can pay about $58,000. You want to buy, improve, and hold? You can pay about $100,000. This is assuming that all your numbers are correct. If any of the numbers change, so does your offer on the return. In the beginning, it will take time and discipline to com- to complete this analysis for each investment opportunity you investigate. Until you know how much it costs to get carpets installed, you have to call vendors and get quotes. Until you know market rents, you have to research them. But with some practice and experience, more and more of these numbers will be readily available to you. Either you already have the numbers or you know someone who can supply them quickly. This is how two millionaire real estate investors we know were able to estimate the total repairs on a property they purchased within 5% of the final cost with nothing more than a notepad and a 10-minute walkthrough. Over time, the process will get easier, but it never should be dropped. It will always inform and protect you buy a million. You have the power. If knowledge is power, you now have more power. You should feel ready, willing, and more able than ever before to make a real estate investment, to take your financial wealth building to the next level. All that remains is to get into action and formed purposeful action. There are two very practical steps to take. First, to understand value and second, to get perspective before you explore your acquisition strategies. By that, we mean you must study your target marketplace and know the prices for properties that meet your criteria and know the trends of those prices. Is the market appreciating? At what rate? What makes you think it will continue to appreciate? What are the economic and demographic forces driving the prices, both in the area and in specific neighborhoods? In addition, you will need to study rental rates. What are the expected rental rates in the properties that meet your criteria? Are they going up? Are they going down? Are they staying flat? What has been the trend over time and what is predicted? What are renters looking for that might allow for higher rental rates? Not in the book. Josh Sterling, Jesse Boyd, and Michael Dundon, who have all been on this podcast before, you can go back and listen. When they, when they rehab their rental properties, they brought all their mar- properties to the top of the market, right? So it didn't matter if there wasn't anything wrong with the kitchen. If it was an old kitchen, they put in a brand new kitchen. If it was an old bathroom, they put in a brand new bathroom. If the roof was questionable at all, they put in a brand new roof. And their idea was to minimize their maintenance costs up front, but they also did the calculation that they were able to get two hundred up to two hundred and fifty dollars more per month in rent for doing something like an additional ten to twelve thousand dollars in additional repairs that they weren't otherwise going to make to improve the property. And that's how they did all of them. Right. So that's what they're talking about here. And then some markets you'll look and see, um, there, maybe there isn't a premium paid for that top of the market. Right. And he says it also reduces the vacancy because so few people have nice houses for rent. You get the idea back to the book. As you look at more and more properties, check what they are selling for and learn what rental rates they are getting. You will build confidence as an investor and be able to calculate the numbers you will put in your terms worksheets accurately. This will empower you to identify the best investment opportunities, make intelligent offers, and buy it right when you acquire a property. You eventually will become a value expert for your type of investment properties in your targeted areas. The second step is to get perspective on where you are on your path as an investor. You will have three choices for your primary short-term strategy. Buy and live, buy and sell, buy and hold. If you are just beginning and have little or no capital to invest, your best bet is to buy and live. This means you treat your own residence as an investment. Not in the book. As I'm going to sip a little bit of coffee here. I do do this for some investors. It's not very often. Most investors already own their own house or before they consider getting a rental. Here, a little sippy sippy, by the way, go to Hazano's. Get the Ethiopian Harar. It's God's coffee on nine mile and, um, a nine mile Ferndale. It's absolutely excellent. Um, so you can, yeah, it, maybe, maybe your first deal, if you don't have any other resources, right? Let's say you, let's say you only qualified for an FHA deal too, right? Federal housing, uh, administration, right? So it's a government guaranteed loan where you could, you only got to bring three and a half percent down if you meet the uh, debt to income ratio and credit and workplace other requirements, right? Um, it's going to be hard to get a 20% off on an FHA deal, right? But let's say you knew, like I knew that January and February, at least in Southeast Michigan, were the months for which property sold the least. There could be, I a- could I could tell you right now because of a great presentation, a great friend of mine did show me all the numbers guys, a fucking magician with these numbers. There's a 10% difference between selling in January and selling in June, July, depending on the property in the area. Right? So even as an FHA buyer, if you just bought when most people didn't want to buy, even if you sucked and you weren't any good at it, you could get up to a 10% discount just by buying at a particular time of the year, you know, get your fucking foot in the door. Anyway, back to the book. If you are current, if you currently have your own residence, want to invest in more real estate, but don't have money to invest, the buy and sell strategy is a great way to build up your investment capital by acquiring properties under market value, fixing them up if they need to, and quickly reselling them. You can make a profit. While you usually will have to pay taxes on that profit. You can reuse the remaining money to make your next investment. As you do more of these deals, you can increase the amount of money you have available for investing. There are millionaire real estate investors who have used some of this cash flow for their living expenses. In this case, they are buying and selling real estate as both a job and a way to earn cash for future investing. Eventually though, they will be investing for a greater uh, proportion of the cash they receive. Not in the book. Um, if you listen to all these podcasts, you'll notice there's people who have done lots of deals and there's people who have done very few deals, but the ones with the, mo- the highest net worth have sold the least amount of properties. doesn't mean they did the least amount of deals. It just means they sold the least amount, which means they they held long-term. Back to the book. In the end, all roads lead to buy and hold. Yes, yeah, I was impatient. I should just wait. This is where true financial wealth is built. You know this is from you know this from studying the financial model. When you have the money from your savings or your net cash proceeds, you will look to acquire properties that you can rent and hold for the long term, maximizing your equity buildup and cash flow growth. No matter where you are in the path, pick the best strategy and then follow the model of the millionaire real estate investor. Stick to your criteria. Be systematic in your lead generation. Use the worksheets. Insist on getting your terms. Engage your network and be a shopper, not a buyer. In fact, shop till you drop. Your financial net worth will rise, perhaps to a level you never imagined. All right. Own a million. What page are we on? We're on page 253. How far along are we? Oh, we're only in an hour and 13 minutes. Yeah, we keep going. All right. Own a million. Dealing with complexity is an inefficient and unnecessary waste of time, attention, and mental energy. There's never any justification for things being complex when they could be simple. The labyrinth. Ooh, let me get a little sippy of coffee here. Some more Ethiopian Harar. God's coffee. Oh it tastes like um it's got a hint of like um tobacco and like berries. Oh, So good. The labyrinth of charters. Sometimes life feels amazing and sometimes it just feels like a maze filled with dead ends, double back loops and places that look alike but aren't. Real estate investing can present a similar set of challenges. So the symbol of the labyrinth of charters may be an appropriate place to begin our own million discussion. Own a million discussion. That famous walkthrough maze is located on the sanctuary floor. Chartes, Chartes. I don't know. Don't speak French. Sorry, France. Cathedral in France, which was built in 1235 AD. It was created so that the parishioners could walk the maze as a substitute for making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. In some cases, they had to shuffle along on their knees as penance. The key to making it through the maze is to stay focused and stay on the path. You see, in the charter's maze, there are no wrong turns, just a long, winding path to the center. Sometimes the path takes you away from the center. But if you carefully watch where you're going and stay on the marked path, you will make it in the end. The curious thing about these types of mazes is that they always look for more complicated, they look far more complicated than they are. That's what I want to talk about here. I want to take the opportunity out of the maze of investing in and owning investment properties. The fact is that anything taken to its most sophisticated level usually becomes complex. Even the cars we drive, the TVs we watch, and the computers we use are at some level very complicated. However, using them to our advantage could be as simple as turning the key in the ignition, operating a remote, and pointing and clicking with the mouse. The question to ask about anything we do is, how much of the complexity must I know in order to get what I want from it? Based on what we have covered already, you now understand how to acquire real estate investment properties and therefore know how to buy a million, acquire a million dollars in property market value. What is different about looking at how to own a million, amass a million in equity? The real difference is a shift in your focus from trying to buy it right to now attempting to grow it right. It's about turning acquired market value into realized equity gain. It's about turning your real estate investments into actual net worth that shows up on the balance sheet. From the beginning of this book, this is the game you set out to play. It is the real estate investing, wealth building game. Get money. But let me be very clear about one thing or get equity, get equity. You already have covered everything you need to know to become a net worth millionaire real estate investor with a million dollars in equity in your investments. It's all in the financial model, the lead generation model and the acquisition model. If you follow those models, you won't go wrong and inevitably will become an own a million real estate investor. Here, you'll be shifting your focus from uh, your focus to a buy and hold investment strategy. While you can always do buy and sell if the opportunity is right and you want to generate some cash, it's buy and hold that brings real financial wealth. The buy and hold strategy is all about maximizing and accelerating equity buildup and cash flow growth. A word of caution before we continue. Up to this point, we have kept things simple and straightforward. Now we are going to cross that line. It's unavoidable. Everyone who pursues financial wealth building will, over time, be forced to deal with these nuances of the game. Just remember that as complex as it may first appear, if you stick with it and stay on the path, it will become increasingly uncomplicated for you. And knowing how to deal with them can make a positive difference in your investing life. Veteran investors love this part of the real estate game. They love to be creative and enthusiastically drive into the complexity like little kids in a pud muddle. They can spend hours debating cash flow versus equity. They can sit on the porch and spit and whistle about rents, repairs, and property management. They go on and on about 1031s, tax loopholes, calculation of return on investments, lease options, non-equal lending, and owner financing are to them the frosting on the cake. They love to tell stories and share the details of their deals, Jeffrey Benowitz, the good, the bad, the ugly, and they love to use insider language and shortcut phrases that no one except a few people even remotely understand to describe their favorite deals and transactions. As you become one of those investors, getting into the creativity of real estate investing may not be necessary, but it is likely. In time, you too will come to understand the maze of creative options available to you and become fascinated with variations of this amazing game. Not in the book. I do have sellers who do this to me sometimes. I, I try and go out of my way. It's like, hey, you, you communicate with me as much as possible. And I can help you more. And every once in a while, I have sellers who don't communicate with me. And just assume they know or assume they can't ask. And they go do things that I, I could have pointed them in the right direction. That's what he's talking about here. They're, if you don't know the creative ways and you get jammed up, you need to be able to call someone like me or Jeff Rabinowitz or Ron the Don. You see what I'm saying? like, Or wherever you are in your neighborhood, whoever those people are, right? And be able to get an answer from them quickly. Back to the book. However, when it comes to reaching your long-term goals, this world of creativity and complexity can be as dangerous as it is compelling. Many of our millionaire real estate investors warned us about these dangers. They told stories of how they got bored with the things they were doing that were working for them and began to get creative in their real estate investments. Then they told us what went wrong, how their financial wealth building got sidetracked or went off track. Looking back, they would say, I wish I had stayed with what was working. I wish I'd bought more of those basic good deals and not sold the good ones I had. 17 issues of own a million. There's 17 of them. huh? With that wisdom in hand, let's focus on the 17 issues you are likely to encounter in a own a million stage or financial wealth building journey. They fall into five principal areas, criteria, terms, network, money, and you criteria, always the guiding light. As tight as your criteria are now, they are not as tight as they're going to be. As you continue to acquire more real estate, you'll become even more certain about your criteria for considering an opportunity and making an offer. The experience you gain in looking at properties, the insight you get from tracking local values, and the results you achieve from your earlier investments will inform your current thinking and decisions. You will be able to sort out the prospects from the suspects much more quickly and ever more precisely let your lead generation network know what you are looking for. Issue one, sticker switch. Once you've begun to acquire good, basic residential real estate investments, don't let your need for greed, speed, or novelty take you off track. Don't cash out too quickly, even if you'd like to have the money right now. Don't begin to take risks because someone says you can get rich faster with other kinds of investments. Don't change your criteria simply because you're bored with looking at the same kind of opportunities and deals again and again. Repetition is the mother of mastery and of skill. When you connect to the results you are achieving, the activities you are repeating, you get excited about the activities. The power is in the repetition and um, not in the book. I see this all the time. New shiny object syndrome. Go to the next guru. Well, this person has a system or what about this? Or would you, have you thought about this? Yeah. It's just uh same thing over and over boring as fuck, right? Back to the book. Here's the basic wisdom. Pick a niche to get rich, learn the niche, master the niche, and eventually own the niche. Stick to it and maximize your financial growth from it. Your criteria will define your niche. It may be geographic or a type of property. Usually you will be focused on the price range and the condition of the property. It also may involve a type of financing or a particular clientele of renters. Once you have that niche and you're getting good results, stick with it. Write it for all it's worth. There may come a time when your niche is maxed out and there are no more good deals in it, or you may find the economic conditions or government regulations that put a hold on growth in that niche. Then you'll be faced with dilemma I call the dilemma of stick or switch. Do I stick with my criteria or switch my market, or do I stick with my market and switch my criteria? Think about this carefully. Don't do it as a knee-jerk reflex. Be sure the switch is necessary and think about what you'd prefer to master, new market or new set of criteria. Not in the book. This happened to me um, when I was doing a shit ton of land contract deals in Detroit. So what I was doing after the FHA loans went away and I got tired of getting burnt out on the section eight renters, right. As um, we were trying to figure out a way cause we had shitty property management back then. We couldn't find anybody good. How can we alleviate some of the main uh, alleviate the maintenance and also get them from a renter perspective to an owner? And we said, Hey, let's sell these things on land contracts and um, started, you know, bumpy road, in the beginning, but it turned out to be one of the most profitable and simplest ways of doing things. And some of these are still getting paid off years later. They just fucking work out. Anyway, government changed the rules. That happens, right? Dodd Frank, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. All of a sudden, that whole land contract is a business model. Um, especially doing, doing any sort of seller financing to a homeowner. It's different if it's an investor. Please talk to a lawyer. I'm not a fucking lawyer. Yada, yada. Anyway, point being they completely changed my business overnight and I looked into getting licensed and everything else and decided that basically government didn't make that profitable anymore. So I had to pivot. And what did I, what did I pivot to? Well, I pivoted back to, uh, renters, but without section eight, just to working renters. Right. So that's, and I had, I had to change my criteria. So back to the book, in either case, you'll need to put in the time and do the work to master your new niche. Our millionaires told us that when they changed strategies, they did it carefully and purposely. They took enough time to gain confidence in the new niche before ramping up their acquisitions. In a sense, they kept a beginner's mind willing to learn before taking action. For them, the phrase persistent effort and patient money is a lifelong principle. Issue number two, become an expert. How does an investor become an expert in his or her niche? Once you've picked a specific geographical area or type of property or set of economic standards, you focus on the details and issues of that real estate investment profile. You must uncover all the information sources you can find out who is working that area Get to know them. Set up your lead generation program. There are three ways to master your niche. Number one, study and observation. Number two, experience and doing. Number three, asking and listening. Study and observation. You already know that you must be able to determine market values and rental values accurately. In your target area, you will track these two factors continuously and be able to apply them to any particular property. But you also will want to follow the local trends that affect those values. You'll keep track of business growth, new constructions, zoning changes, highway construction, recreational development, and any other factors that might indicate increased population, employment, and housing demand. Millionaire real estate investors are students and observers. This is how they become confident about predicting average time on market for property sales future home sales prices, vacancy rates, and the likelihood of continued price and rent appreciation. When they factor appreciation into their acquisition evaluations, they aren't guessing or being hopeful. They know because they take the time to make the efforts, become experts in that type of property, in that price range, in that kind of condition, in that location. They know their criteria in great detail and they do enough research to know whether a property is worth pursuing or a deal worth doing. Many of them even keep their own databases of real estate activities, listings, rents, and recent closings. They know that they need to know, they know what they need to know. So they notice and take note. They search out reports and review the facts. You will too. A good way to do this. um, If you have MLS access is you can actually set up um, a search for closed properties and get all the comps emailed to you once a week, once a month, you can set up however you want um, that's a good way to do it. I'm in it every fucking day because I'm a real estate agent and I work for a bunch of savage investors all the time. But like, if you're not looking every day, you can just go set up a search for it, right? Um, or if you don't, you could just reach out to an agent you like, whatever. And say, hey, man, can you send me all the comps that fit this criteria within a half mile? of This property, you know, and they can send it to you and maybe get an update once. Every month or two, right? There's a lot of ways you can do it, but you got to keep your pulse on it. I ultimately recommend that if you're going to be serious about it, that everybody get access to the MLS in one shape or form, because most of the information you need, at least to act quickly, is there. And then you don't have to save it all, all the time. It's just right there, right? Back to the book Experience in Doing. Experience in Doing. You can't play the game from the sidelines, and you certainly can't do it from the stands. So as much as you learn from observing and tracking trends, your real estate investment education has really just begun. To be a true expert, you have to get in the game, mix it up, get dirty, take your lumps, and learn from your miscues. Millionaire real estate investors know what they know because they know how it works in the real world, the multivariable interactive world of action and reaction, cause and effect. In the end, real wisdom comes from taking action and learning from what happens. I have come to see learning as having four stages, understanding, knowledge, wisdom, and power. Understanding means you're aware of something. You get it mentally. Knowledge means you have studied it and see how you could do it. Wisdom means you have experienced it and know how it works. Power means you have become, it has become a part of you and you do it habitually. You are now unconsciously competent. There is no difference between you and what you know. It is reflexive. You act on it virtually without thinking about it. You make it look simple. The true masters of anything are like this. Their knowledge and wisdom are deep. However, their level of learning has a price. It comes from doing. While the masters remain students of the game, they are first and foremost players of the game. This is the place I want to point you toward. Becoming a master of a real estate investment game. Be willing to get in the arena and learn by doing. Mistakes are okay. In fact, they are great teachers. Don't fear them. Embrace them. Do this not because mistakes are your goal, but because they are inevitable in achieving any goal. Take action and learn how to enjoy the challenges. And lessons out of the game. Plus, if you're not doing it, man, you're not fucking doing it. I don't understand. What is the point of reading a fucking book and doing all this shit and then not going out and do it? I see it all the time. I see people spend $35,000 on a fucking guru course and never do anything like education. I can't remember what the quote is. Education without application is masturbation. If you're just reading a book. You're just essentially jerking off in your mom's basement. If you're not going out and attempting to apply it in some way, shape or form, you know, you don't want to be that keyboard, you know, keyboard warrior. That book warrior has a fucking answer for everything and never does anything. You know, take the time to learn. And then once you have a little bit of confidence, man, get out there and execute back to the book, asking and listening. It's not just the formal or institutional sources of information that matter. It's the locals at the cafe and the retirees shooting the breeze on the porch. There's a wealth of useful local information that comes from spitting and whistling and the neighborhood gossip. Don't overlook it, underestimate it, or prejudge it. You want, to access, you want access to that kind of unpublished insider information. It can give you an advantage in finding hidden opportunities, avoiding unknown dangers, and negotiating from strength. What these people know can make you wealthy. And it's an app, um, not in the book. This is an app. Uh, the next door app, if you can stand all the people whining and bitching and complaining about everything, you enter your zip code, locks in, locks you into a neighborhood. And you can kind of see what's going on, right? And you can set that zip code to anything you want. So let's say you are interested in, I don't know. I'll pick Detroit because I fucking know it. Um, you're interested in Boston Edison, right? You can go enter the Boston Edison zip code into the next door app. Uh, you can only be on one at a time. That's the downside to this. It's not designed for a bunch of greedy real estate fucking investors. It's designed for homeowners to like communicate in the neighborhood. right? So you can, only, you can only pick one neighborhood. But then you'll see what everybody's talking about, what their concerns are, what they're complaining about, which is mostly what they do. But there is good information in there. And you don't have to go anywhere to do it. Back to the book. Locals know. Who may need to sell and why? Death, divorce, lost jobs, family changes, etc. They know the history of a property and its neighborhood: fires, floods, repairs, crime, etc. Also, not in the book. This is why I talk to every neighbor. I'm going on appointments almost always. Somebody comes out, and I go introduce myself, I hand in my card, tell them what I'm doing. And you know the one I'm talking about? It was my grandma. You know, she didn't have any fucking anything else fucking better to do. She just stand around staring at people all day. Knew exactly when they were coming and going, what they were doing, what they wore, what happened in the house. And, you know, 28 years ago, Rogers step kid started a fire in the garage. You know, they they know everything about it. That's what they're talking about. Back to the book. They may know people who would like to rent the property, help you maintain it. And even keep an eye on it for you. Remember that all real estate is local. It's tied to the community and what is happening in the community. The principles for real estate investing may be universal, but the conditions are always local. You must know your niche intellectually, experientially, and socially. Your knowledge, your experience, and your relationships are what can make you a financially wealthy expert. Issue number three, think in units. There's one trend that is so perverse among our millionaire real estate investors that it seems to be so pervasive. <laughs> Sorry. There is one trend that is so pervasive among our millionaire real estate investors that it seems to be a truth. We've come to call, call it the think in units truth. It's about how many units you own, and it's really a double think. Rental units and managed units. Management units. So understand this truth geographically. Look at the chart below. As the number of dollars invested in real estate increases, you can see more dollar signs as you move down the left-hand column. So does the number of rental units. However, our research shows that there is at the same time a decrease in the number of management units, the shaded rectangles. In other words, as you invest in more and more real estate, you begin to think in units, the number of management units that contain your rental units. If you if all you owned were single family homes, you would have one management unit for each rental unit. But when you acquire a duplex, you now have two rental units for one man in one management unit. In a fourplex, you have four rentals in one management unit. And in an apartment building, there could be many rentals within just one management unit. This trend toward multi-unit properties makes sense for at least two reasons, simplicity of management and limitation of losses. Since each building will require both property management and leasing services, it is usually easier and more efficient to have fewer of them. Handling one large apartment building with 100 rental units is easier than managing and leasing 100 separate single-family houses. Thus, consolidating management costs can increase the profitability, net cash flow of the investment. The second reason for doing this is that it can limit potential losses on individual management units. If you have one vacant apartment in a 20 unit building, you are receiving 95% of your rental income from that property. You are unlikely to go into default on your debt service, and you probably still have positive cash flow. When your single-family rental house is vacant you don't have any income from that property and that represents a big problem for that management unit if you own 20 single-family homes your total income loss is the same just five percent as it is in the 20 unit building but you may incur more hassle and paperwork as you move cash flow from other properties to protect your vacant home especially if you got your home separated into different legal entities that brings up another important factor that leads investors to think in units. Each management unit also entails entity protection, like LLCs, corporations, uh, limited partnerships, etc. insurance policies, a tax return, and probably a separate property manage, uh, management person. The consolidation of your units under one roof, so to speak, saves on all these costs, and when you must be involved, probably will save you a lot of driving time. This is certainly the case where you uh can take the complexity out of the game. Not in the book. Single family units, I have a lot of investors who just buy in a very small area for that reason, right? Same with they're doing flips. They don't want to travel outside the area. They don't want to waste a lot of time driving. They want to try and keep everything close together. Um single family, that's what they're talking about. Obviously with apartments, all the units are already there. But you can kind of accomplish something um like Jesse Boyd, who was on the podcast and Michael Dunn were on the podcast. They acquired almost all their properties in a couple neighborhoods of Redford, like 50 properties in a couple. Yeah. So their maintenance, it's all, you know, within like eight, eight, 12 blocks. So you can do it that way too. Back to the book. Multi-unit properties also can increase your ratio of rents to value. This means that you are receiving more monthly income for each dollar's worth of market value on the property. You can easily see with a duplex, triplex or fourplex. In most areas, based on our research, uh, you will be able to get between 0.7% and 1% of the property's value as monthly rent. In our acquisitions model, we recommend using 0.8%. As you will call, this means that if the property has a market value of $100,000, you'd expect to rent it for $800 a month. Typically, you will find that the rental income from a duplex with two rental units is greater. It won't be double, but it's usually 25 to 50% more. Thus, if the $100,000 property is a duplex, you may have two units that each rent for for $600, thereby getting you a total of $1,200 per month, 1.2%. The downside of large multifamily buildings is they may not get the same level of appreciation and value that is possible for single-family properties. Also, there is more limited market for those who will or can buy them. If you sell, it will be to other investors and they will base their offer strictly on your cash flow numbers. No emotional buyers here. Therefore, most of our millionaire real estate investors told us they kept some single family properties in their portfolio. They liked the flexibility, the ability to sell or refinance one or two for immediate cash, and the increased appreciation if there was an ongoing buyer demand in that market. Terms hold them dear. As you become a master of terms on your path to own a million and beyond, you will learn more and more about four things. Controlling the property before you make the deal, using creative financing to finance the deal, maximizing your net operating income to get more cash flow out of the deal, and knowing your options for property disposition to get maximum cash out of the deal. Controlling the deal, getting in for less, generating greater cash flow, and maximizing cash you get when you sell will become your terms of endearment. Remember, when your criteria drive your lead generation and help you identify an investment opportunity, it is the terms that make a deal worth doing. Your long-term success as a real estate investor will come down to your ability to master and get the right terms, so always hold them dear. There are really three kinds of terms, acquisition, operating, and disposition. Each one of them can affect the overall financial performance of your investments. Making the terms work for your money is how you get your money to work for you i recommend that you master the terms worksheet buy and hold each area of the worksheet represents a place where you can improve the way your money works for you if you use it as a guide you will learn to control it buy it right operate it right and when it's time sell it right buying operating and selling is a dynamic process what you do at one point in the process will affect many other parts of your investment picture Successful investors understand the way all the parts affect each other and the results that are achieved. If you can understand this, you will make more informed decisions and more positive choices along your path to becoming a millionaire. The first step in getting clarity is to have a standard model for use for comparison. Then as you make changes from that standard model, you can see what the impact is on your cash flow and your return on investment and see how great that impact is. Let's now look at how terms can affect your cash flow and return on investment by isolating the variables. This is on page 266, so it's going to be a little complicated, so you might want to pull out. If you're not looking at the book, make sure you go back to figure five on page 266, but I think you'll probably understand anyway. Our standard model looks like this. $100,000 current market value, 20% discounted purchase price, 20% down payment. 5% annual appreciation in market value, 5% annual appreciation in rents, initial monthly rents at 0.8% of market value, expenses and vacancy at 40% of rental income, and a 30-year loan at 7.43%. Sounds really fucking high now, right? You can tell when this book was written. We will compare the annual cash flow and annual return on investment we achieve in year 10. You can see the results of this analysis in the chart below. For our standard model, we would achieve at year 10 an annual cash flow of $3,602 and a total return on investment for that year of 78.3%. This return on investment ROI is a total of $12,526 of annual appreciation, $7,759 plus annual principal paydown, $1,165 plus annual net cash flow, $3,602 divided by the initial down payment. That's the amount of money you put in. But let's say it was down payment and um, you know, maybe you had to throw in like closing costs, whatever. You make that number, whatever you want. But whatever the money is you put down in the deal, right? This is not the only way to calculate return as we will discuss later, but it provides a standard for comparison. What we see from the standard model chart is that If we don't buy with a discount, both our cash flow and our return will go down. Lower market value appreciation doesn't really affect cash flow, but seriously reduces return on investment by up to 29% in this particular case. Higher market value appreciation doesn't change the projected cash flow, but increases ROI by 41.4%. Lower rent appreciation reduces cash flow and ROI, return on investment. Higher rent appreciation is very positive for anticipated cash flow and also increases return on investment. Holding expenses to 30% causes a dramatic increase in cash flow $1,490 over the standard model. Getting rents up from 0.8% to 1% of property value also increases the cash flow by a whopping $2,234 annually or which you might call a value add, right? If you're doing apartments and you go in and do improvements, and then you can rent them out two hundred dollars more, right? That's that's what we're talking about here. Back to the book. Doing this also increases return on investment. Finally, a 05 percent increase or decrease in loan interest rates doesn't seriously affect either cash flow or ROI. Even a full one percent reduction in the interest rate, not shown in this chart increases the return on investment by 5%, nowhere near as dramatic an impact as having a higher market appreciation or getting a higher rental rate. As you acquire and operate your income properties, you now know where to focus your efforts to improve your terms. Depending on whether your current goals concern maximizing the cash flow from your properties or the return on investment of your investments, let these numbers direct your focus. If you want increased cash flow, do these three things. Number one, get higher rents for a 62% increase over the standard model. Number two, reduce expenses for a 41% increase over the standard model. Number three, invest in areas where rents are appreciating for a 37% increase over the standard model. If your goal is to maximize return on investment, do these three things. Invest in areas where values are appreciating, for a 53% increase over the standard model. Number two, get higher rents for an 18% increase over the standard model and reduce expenses for a 12% increase over the standard model. Investing in areas with strong rent or value appreciation is really about criteria. The two areas impacted by terms that have a strong impact on both cash flow and return on investment are higher rents and reduced expenses, right? There's a figure on page 268, figure six, higher rents, reduce expenses vacancy. Millionaire, Millionaire real estate investors at the own a million stage understand the impact their acquisition, operation, and disposition terms can have on their cash flow and a return on investment. They are continually exploring new creative ways to impact the profitability of their investments through terms. So let's explore in detail the four principal ways millionaire investors do this. Number one, they control the property and negotiate everything. Number two, they take full advantage of creative financing. Number three, they maximize their net operating income. Number four, they know their options for disposition. How many pages do we have left? All right. Let's see. I might stop right here cuz I I do, do got to read one more time. I know we're only in an hour and 46 minutes, but I don't want the I don't want part 5 to be like short and be an hour. So how many pages do I have? I'm just counting real quick. Probably should have done this before I started, but fuck it. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. Um stay the course. So I'm going to keep going a little bit longer because we got to, we got to go to page 353. So I'm going to go, yeah, we're going to go a little bit longer. Issue number four control the property and negotiate everything. In real estate, as in most everything in life, the advantage goes to the one in control. This is why I tell people put it under contract. Put the fucking thing under contract. Lock it up. Putting a property under contract even before all the details are worked out gets you in the driver's seat. And that's where you need to be. When you find an opportunity that looks good, always think about quickly getting it under contract. The contract gives you control and will always have clauses that allow you to exit the deal if your due diligence, inspections, conveyances, zoning, research, etc., shows that you need to get out. In some cases, you might need to invest in an option or a non-refundable deposit, but this may be a small consideration in return for the advantage of controlling the sale. If you determine that you do not want the property, you can still sell and assign your contract to another investor and be paid for it. Here is some advice from our millionaire real estate investors. Negotiate everything and anything. You do this when you make your initial offer and later with counteroffers. Of course, you will be sure to get your price with your discount. But in many ways, there's only one beginning. Look at the property and see what could be conveyed with the sale. Valuable conveyances might include the washer and dryer, the drapes or blinds, a gas grill, some furniture. When appropriate, ask for needed repairs or for the seller to cover part or all of your closing costs. You never know what you can get until you ask. Think outside the box. Think outside the house. I've seen it all in thousands of transactions that have come across my desk as a broker. From the buyer who said he would do the deal if the seller would throw in all the lawn equipment, to another who said she'd buy at the seller's price if it included the classic Mercedes in the garage. In both cases, the seller said yes. But it's not just about personal property or conveyances. It can be about the financial numbers. When my co-author Dave bought a property six years ago, he offered to pay the sellers the full asking price if they would contribute $7,000 towards his closing costs. They said yes without making a counteroffer. He knew that they had been out of the house for several months and already had one purchase contract fall through. Rather than lowball his offer on a house he really wanted, he guessed that a full price offer with his financing pre-approved and in writing would be very attractive to him. The contribution to his closing costs would seem incidental to getting it sold and closed quickly. He was right, but he wouldn't have known if he hadn't asked. The key is to find out what is important to the sellers. Offer them what they want and then ask for what you want. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Find out what will. Great negotiators are great investigators. They know that every transaction needs to be a win-win. You need to make it a win for you for sure, but also look for ways to make it a win for the other party. Always be curious. Always ask. Find out what is important to the seller and know what is important to you. Negotiate everything and anything. Issue five, finance creatively. As you do more investing, you will need to master creative financing. Your ability to construct creative financial terms might get you in the deals you might not otherwise be able to do. In some markets, as I experienced in the late 70s and again in the early 80s, creative financing may well be the only way to get transactions done. There comes a time when conventional institutional financing can be overly expensive or not available. This situation may be caused by general economic conditions or your personal financial situation. Once you have a number of properties, institutional lenders may place limits on what they will lend you as an investor. You may have to wait until you have equity in or positive cash flow from your properties that they require in order to lend you more. Finally, sometimes sellers have specific situations they may require or allow creative financing. This presents a unique opportunity to construct a creative transaction that meets the seller's goals that still works for you. Creative financing is a way around these binds. It also can help you get into properties with less of your own money, use as a down payment and lower your monthly debt service. Thus, you will want to master such concepts as owner financing when the, where the seller carries the mortgage for you or like land contracts. That'd be another form of owner sign or they call it contract for deed. If you're out West, right? Assumptions or it could also be a mortgage, right? It could be a mortgage. They could just give you a mortgage. It doesn't have to be a land contract or a contract for deed. Number two, assumptions. Taking responsibility for the seller's mortgage when this is allowed by the seller's mortgage lender. So all FHA mortgages and VA mortgages are assume, assumable, but you still have to go through a qualification process. They still have to qualify. But not every mortgage is as, as assumable, right? But some of them are. You you can Assume some mortgages, right? Especially if you qualify. So that's always a possibility. There's not a lot of them out there anymore, but anyway, it's possible. Number three, wraps, where the owner offers you a new loan while keeping and paying down their original loan. The new loan wraps the original. And this is actually a a form of seller financing, so it's weird they put it in there. Number four, lease options, leasing the property from the seller until you have the equity or cash to buy it. Private seconds, where you obtain a second loan to cover your down payment on the primary mortgage loan. Be careful with that one. Um, Number six, syndications, where you involve other investors and partners in your acquisitions. This is almost always multifamily. Millionaire investors use all the tools in their toolbox to get the deal done. The chart on the facing page illustrates how the numbers might work in a scenario where the investor attempts to take ownership of a $100,000 property through creative financing. You'll note that conventional financing, column one, is included as a point of reference for these creative variations. In all four of the ownership scenarios, columns one through four, it's important you understand that a private second loan can also come from the seller. Just know that secondary liens in general carry less favorable terms for the buyer. It's about collateral. First liens are generally secured against the property and first in line if the deal goes sour and the property must be liquidated to pay back the loan. Secondary lenders account for this in the the terms they offer. Also, any of these scenarios can be syndicated if you're unable or unwilling to provide cash or collateral to make the deal, these deals happen. In each case, you will negotiate a deal and bring in other partners and investors. Your ability to borrow the money will go through three stages, credit, equity, and cash flow. At first, lenders will look to your credit worthiness as reflected in your credit score. Therefore, having little or no credit card debt, paying your bills on time, and have a history of paying back loans, mortgages, autos, student loans, in a timely, responsible way will contribute to strong credit rating. It also matters that you have some savings available for down payments. Although you may be able to purchase your own residence with little or no money down, when it comes to conventional financing for buy and hold real estate, you usually will need to put your own money into it. The lenders will expect it, and it gives you instant equity. At some point, you will need credibility as well as a credit rating. The lender will need to see that you have made wise investments. The first measure of this will be your equity position in the properties you own. Sometimes you can access this money by getting a home equity loan or using it to make your down payment. In fact, you may become your own lender of choice. The interest rate is right, the approvals are easy, and you have all the control. Beyond self-financing, many of our millionaire real estate investors took advantage of private lending or established a line of credit using the equity in one or more of their investment properties as collateral. In any case, you have reached a lender's limit on borrowing. That lender will consider you for more, only if you have a very strong, provable equity position in your current holdings. Finally, and particularly for larger multifamily acquisitions, the amount on the loan would be based strictly on the cash flow of the property. An institutional lender will require a detailed analysis based on recent and verifiable financial reports of the property of rental income, expenses, vacancy, and net cash flow of the property. Those lenders are looking to minimize their risks, and so they will be very cautious when considering a large loan on an income property. Your track record and reputation will be as important as the specific numbers on the building. At this stage of your investing, you are likely to be a major factor in a person's willingness to lend you money. In a sense, your credibility is always with you, and it could be one of your most valuable assets. Yeah, don't fuck that up. I fucked up my credibility, crashed it pretty hard for a long time. And it took me a long time to build it back up. So treat that like your credit. Issue number six, maximize your net operating income. The third area of terms you will need to master is maximizing your net operating income. In a sense, this is the ability to run your real estate investments at a profit. Net operating income is what you have left from your gross rental income after you have covered your vacancies and paid your operating expenses. This is detailed in the Terms Worksheet Buy and Hold. Actually, from an operating point of view, there are only rental income and expenses. Vacancies simply reduce your rental income. Thus, there are three things you can do to maximize your net operating income. Increase gross rental income, control expenses, and minimize vacancies. Let's take them in that order. Increase gross rental income. Millionaire real estate investors achieve higher rents than others. Most of the millionaires in our research group follow the one percent rule of thumb for rents, getting one percent of the property market's property's market value as the monthly rent, i.e. hundred thousand dollar house rent for a thousand dollars a month. When we looked at rents and values in a large number of markets, that rule of thumb seemed too optimistic, particularly for single-family homes. We determined that a 0.8% for single-family properties was probably more realistic as a rule of thumb, and that is we used for the example in the buy a million section of the book. But that rule of thumb didn't hold up. Our millionaire investors consistently achieved higher than average rents. How do they do that? As a group, they do five specific things to maximize rents. First, they used rent escalators in their contracts so their rent would increase year by year without question, negotiation, or notice. It would happen automatically. And the renters would know that they had pre-agreed to it, thus it didn't feel arbitrary. While this preset rent increase might not keep up with the actual rental trends, it at least meant that there was some increase even when the same renters were in place for a long time. Second, They made the kind of improvements that were attractive to local renters and made their property stand out. What they discover is that within reason, people will pay more if they believe they're getting more value. Hey, I mentioned this before, right? But uh, Jesse Boyd and Josh Sterling and Michael Dundon, back to the book, cosmetic improvements and certain amenities can make your rentals uniquely better than the competitions and bring more gross income. Remember from our earlier discussion that raising rents even a few tenths of a percent can have a big positive impact on your net cash flow and returns. Third, some of our investors specialize in government-subsidized housing called Section 8 Subsidies. They knew which houses and which areas would qualify for the subsidies, and that allowed them to market this advantage and achieve premium rents. Their net positive cash flow became virtually automatic. Some of those we interviewed were very good at targeting their tenants. They would work with local real estate agents or apartment locators to attract the right renters those willing to pay a premium for the right place. They would highlight the quality features and amenities of their units. In essence, they would work to lead generate their tenants in the same way they would lead generate for investment opportunities. They would get testimonials from current renters and would ask for good renters for additional renter uh, rental leads. In some cases, they would target people with short-term needs. Those new to the area or those waiting for a custom home to be built and give them flexibility in the length of the lease in order to maximize the rental income. Or I did an insurance job once. They paid me like twice my rent for nine months. It was crazy. Back to the book. The fourth method for increasing rental, uh, for increasing revenue was to gain other income from the tenants. Coin operated laundry as fees for pets, storage, parking and lawn care could all be additional sources of income. It was highly recommended to have tenants take care of their own utilities with direct personal responsibility for payment to the utility providers. Control Expenses Controlling operating expenses is a great way to increase your net operating income and is only a matter of record keeping and attention to details. Many investors we interviewed set up well-organized systems of bookkeeping and cost accounting. Several set up their own property management businesses. Whether you do it yourself or have a management service do it for you, It's important to watch your expenses trend and question anything that seems out of line. Rob Harrington from Boston says that he compares his cost sheets from month to month, notes the trends, and looks for unusual changes. Over the years, he has discovered water leaks and faulty electrical units that if let go for a long period of time could have cost him hundreds or even thousands of dollars. If you have the right record-keeping system in place and set aside a regular time slot each month to do your review... Regular time, so I do. he says that will not take very much time, and you'll be paid well for doing it. Expenses saved are profits earned. Another consideration in maximizing your net operating income by controlling expenses have to do with repairs and improvements. We've looked at this in the buy and sell area, and we discussed this concept in maximum return, page two thirty-two. The most astute investors knew that repairs and improvements are not just an issue for buy and sell or fix and flip. They are a major part of the net operating income equation. There are three moments of truth for improvements. Number one, after you buy it, but before you rent it. Number two, while you own and operate. Number three, before you sell. Repairs and improvements involve making cost-benefit calculations. The right improvements may allow you to get higher rents and a better price when you sell. The wrong improvements may accomplish neither. The right improvements may represent a great use of your cash flow. The wrong ones may not. Improvements are tax deductible, are a tax deductible expense and the right ones could add value to your property, thereby increasing equity. The wrong ones are just deductions. There are four kinds of improvements. Improvements that are necessary and add value, such as a new roof and flooring. Improvements that are unnecessary, but add value, such as landscaping or cosmetic, um, enhancements. Number three, improvements that are necessary but don't add value, such as plumbing repair, rewiring to code, foundation work. And number four, improvements that are unnecessary and don't add value, such as adding expensive fixtures or amenities. The last category is a judgment call and is essentially a matter of whether the cost of the improvement will bring an equivalent increase in market or rental value. Your support and service network specialists will be able to consult with you on this. So seek them out and listen hard to their advice. The wisest landlords know that repairs and improvements are an net operating income financial gain. They know that it is not always wise to minimize operating costs at the expense of income and equity gains. They understand these operating costs are in fact another form of investing. Minimize vacancies. Reducing vacancies and the time it takes to re-rent the property are also important ways to improve net operating income. The key is to anticipate vacancies and have a game plan to market the properties to new tenants. Get ahead of your tenants, not buying. When a unit goes vacant, be ready to rehab, clean, prep, and market it quickly. Note, the more units you own, the more cost-effective it becomes to have a staff or service provider perform the service for you. Now, while it may seem obvious that keeping your tenants for a long time reduces vacancies and is a good thing, Rob Harrington says that many landlords are so eager to raise rent that they may alienate good tenants. Remember, he points out, it may take you a very long time, even at a higher rent, to make up for the lost income from a vacancy. All right, I think I'm going to stop there because that gives us... About the same number of pages to read next week, which is 70, which we are at two hours and five minutes. And I think that that is perfect. So we're going to end right here on page 280. 280. What do you guys think? We're almost through, man. One more time part five and we are done. So we got 70 more pages and we are officially done. So, all right, folks, I hope you are enjoying this. If you like the podcast, there's some ways you can help us out. If you don't like the podcast, man, keep going, man. What are you doing? Listening here, move right along. But if you do like and enjoy this podcast and you would like to help me out, first thing you can do, it's super easy. You can rate review on iTunes. It's really easy to do. It takes almost no time and you'd be surprised how much that helps, right? You can also just share the podcast directly with others. You know, you can hire me to list or sell your, your house or you can hire me or one of my agents to find you investment property or maybe even a personal residence. Um, some people refer buyers and sellers to me and some people send me wholesale deals. So these are all the different ways you could help support the podcast. If you would pick one out, hook a brother up. If not, don't worry about it, man. Move on. Maybe when you got time in the future or you have something to offer in the future, that's great. Um, if you don't have anything, don't fucking worry about it, man. That's the point of this podcast. Get out there and do some shit, though, right? Don't sit around waiting. You know. So go to renegadetroit.com If you don't want to attend any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. You can send me an email, jeremy at renegadedetroit.com, 313 600 2133. Shout out to Joe Randall, mortgages by joe randall.com. So, you know how Joe Randall bought me this beautiful podcast table? Well, I guess what Joe Randall also bought, Renegade Detroit Investors. New fucking speakers, man, because you guys are loud. So. Thank you very much Joe. He is our our the official lender of Renegade Detroit investors all right this is the guy I use anyway. I'm just glad he gave me the money. So if you're looking for a conventional FHA VA refi purchase anything weird or if you just have questions whenever I get jammed up on really particular lending questions then we're talking about our network. Joe Randall's the guy uh, one of the guys I reach out to and when it comes to mortgages he is the guy I reach out to mortgages by Joe Randall two L's.com. All right. I uh, hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, hope they had a great Thanksgiving, uh, tomorrow I'm going to release this today. And tomorrow is a renegade right investors meeting. So that'll be cool. Hope to see you guys there. We're doing a new segment called ask me anything. If you've been attending the meetings, you've noticed they've gotten very, very large. And we've lost a lot of that intimacy that I love, but I don't want to reduce the size of the meeting because it's just so fucking exciting. It's like a room full of tigers and you're just like throwing meat into it. I love the level of excitement we have, but it does mean that I'm not as able to to speak to as many people as I would like there. So we started, um, and ask me anything. Now you have to, there's some rules to this, right? We're going to meet at various locations around Detroit Go to meetup.com or facebook.com forward slash uh, Detroit Investment Club to see this or just get on our mailing list, right? There are certain things you have to do, which means you have to attend a meeting before and you have to have a question. And I'm going to have a lender there. It'll be me, Jay, Gina there, Answer answering your flipping questions, agent questions, rental questions, whatever it may be. You do need your question ahead of time, so we know you're prepared. And the next one of those is going to be December 5th from 3 to 6 p.m. at Azanos, right? You must RSVP. If you have not attended a meeting before, don't bother coming. Don't bother applying. This is a meeting for people who attend the regular Renegade Detroit Investors meeting, right? It's not a substitute. This is in addition to, so I can maintain a level of intimacy with people who would like more time with me, right? And by doing this once a month for three hours, Jay, Joe, Gina, myself, or whoever else I bring can spend a lot more time with you, and we can kind of bridge that intimacy gap that is being created with the um, the meetings. I think I think the last meeting we had 192 people there, which I love, but it is fucking insane. So, anyway, go check that out if that's something you're interested in. We're going to be doing it every month. Um, we're doing this one. We did the last one, Hazana. We do this one, Hazano, Come out. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Make sure you go and read the rules and do everything. Love to see you there. All right, folks, as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I don't know if you're looking around and feeling too warm and fucking fuzzy. Not me. I know there are distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits that may have prevented you from starting or sticking with your goals. Don't give up. Pick a goal and do something every day. Get you closer, even if it's one step. I do thank you for listening. I do appreciate your attention. Till the next podcast or meeting. Crush it.